0: Well, um, the, the message this morning, uh, we're talking about the gospel and saving, and I want to start back in my hometown. I grew up in Shenandoah, Iowa, and uh, my when I was 15 years old, my sophomore year of high school, my family moved from a big four-bedroom house that was about a 100 years old to a smaller three-bedroom house that was slightly newer. And the, my parents claimed that the reason was that I was going to be graduating in about two years, my brother a couple years after me, so they were kind of preparing to be empty nesters. I think my mom just hated having drafty windows and no insulation in the house. Uh, so we moved into this place on 1400 Maple Street, and it did not take a genius to realize that the homes on Maple Street were a little nicer than the homes back in my previous neighborhood. And they weren't big and lavish, but they were just newer, and, and you could just tell it, things were a little nicer. Well, one day I'm driving with my dad on my street, and he makes some sort of joke about how we are probably the poorest people in our neighborhood. Now, we were not wealthy at all. My mom was a schoolteacher. My dad was the marketing department for a string of shoe stores. But we were making ends meet. We were doing okay. But my dad starts saying, yeah, that guy's a millionaire, and that guy's a millionaire, and oh, I'm pretty sure they're a millionaire. And like as we're driving up, and he says, yeah, there's probably a good 12, 20 different millionaires on our street. My jaw just kind of dropped. And so in that moment, I decided I am going to become a millionaire too. (laughs) And I used to tell people, not only was I going to become a millionaire, I was going to become a millionaire by age 30. Now, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't have a game plan. I figured I'd either become like a computer programmer and, you know, start a software company that would rival Microsoft. Uh, you know, maybe I'd become a musician and I'd, I'd write songs that would become, you know, well-known and popular because I heard the stuff on the radio and I thought, well, I could write something like that. You know, so I, I thought this is going to be easy. I'm going to become a millionaire by age 30. But then my freshman year of college came. And even though I was struggling spiritually, as so I was seeking after God, I sense God saying, I want you to go into full-time occupational ministry, and I knew that meant I wouldn't be rich. (laughs) In fact, I've told some people, if you want to become wealthy, don't go into ministry, and definitely don't plant a church. Uh, That's not a good game plan for becoming a millionaire by age 30. Uh, But I, I do have to admit that even though I have never been rich, God has blessed my family. You know, I really can't complain. He's always provided for us every step of the way. But he hasn't provided in a way where we've been able to do a lot of the things that our peers have been able to do. It, we've, we've had friends who, you know, they've taken the kids to Disney World. And if you've taken kids to Disney World, awesome, great. That, that was just never in the realm of possibility for us. You know, this past year, Leanne and I celebrated 25 years of marriage. We've had friends who, 25th, big deal. You, you go off to Hawaii that, that wasn't in the cards for us. Uh, we did go to, go to Glacier National Park, but our kids were with us. But hey, still, it was Glacier. It was awesome. You know, in, in fact, Leanne and I still to this day, after 25 years of marriage, still don't have real bedroom furniture. Like, it's just, you know, nicks and nacks and, you know, it, we, our underwear can go into something. That's what matters. You know, we just have never been rich. I, I would suspect that quite a few of you, if, if I, you don't have to do this, but I would suspect that if I ask for a show of hands, and said, are you rich, very few of your hands would go up. Because in our minds, most of us think the rich are people who have these like, multi-million dollar houses, they own six cars, and they wear clothes that cost more than my monthly salary. Like, that's rich, and I am nowhere close to that. I am not rich. But the problem is that, that those sort of people, they've skewed our perspective of what it means to be rich. And so for you to understand where we're going today, I need to help give you a better definition of what it looks like to be rich, all right? So here is how real rich people live. Now, I realize what I'm about to share with you is going to be shocking. It's going to be disturbing. Some of you are just going to be like, you are got to be kidding me, all right? But just hang in there. You're going to be able to handle this. But here is how the rich live. Rich people have a house. No surprise there, but they don't have to share their house because globally there are people who can only afford a one bedroom place and they'll have like 12 kids and they all pack in there. And sometimes aging parents have to come and live with them. Like no one can just afford their own place, but the rich can. The rich have a house. It's it's like one house per family. That's what the rich live like. And the rich. They not only have a house for their family, they oftentimes have a bedroom for each kid. Like the kids don't even have to share. Like most families, you know, you're putting three, four, five kids, you know, in a room. Ri- no, most, most fan- rich people, kids get their own room. Oh, and get this: the rich. Not only do they have a bedroom for each kid, they have a bedroom for no one. It's called a guest bedroom. Like they they have a mini hotel inside of their house. The room just sits there waiting for people to come and use the bedroom. That's what it's like to be rich. The rich also have cars. Like Globally, most people, they have to use public transportation to get someplace, but not the rich. The rich are so wealthy, they can drive their car, spend the money for the gasoline, to drive the mile to the gym so they could walk on the treadmill for a mile. That's what it's like to be rich. Oh, and and get this. The rich, they, they usually have more than just one car. They oftentimes have a car for every single person that has a driver's license, which means if they have a child who's 16 years old, and has a driver's license, that kid oftentimes has a car. Because they're rich. Oh, get this. The rich, they have houses for their cars. And these houses are so special, they have a name for them. They're called garages. It is unbelievable. Like a house. I mean, these houses for the cars are nicer than many of the houses all around the world. But get this. Some people are so rich, they can't fit their car into the car house. So they park the car on their private driveway, and they fill the garage with stuff. Like there's so much stuff, they're so wealthy, they can't even put their car in the car house. Oh, and some people are so rich, they can't even fit all their stuff in their own house. So they own what's called a storage unit. And they put more stuff out there because they're so rich. Now I know this is shocking, this is disturbing, you can't believe that people actually live like this. I'm almost done. One last thing. All around the world, people have cell phones. In fact, more people have access to cell service than they do to clean water. But the rich not only have a cell phone that enables them to call and to text, they have a smartphone. I mean, a cell phone that's called a smartphone. And on this smartphone, they can actually see the person that they're talking to. It's like straight out of sci-fi. It's, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. And they can check the internet. They can get their email. Oh, and get this. They can also go onto their smartphone and check their bank account to see how rich they are. Now, don't do this. But if I were to ask for a show of hands and ask how many of you are rich, I think we'd probably see quite a few hands go up. And it's important for us to realize that we are rich because it means we often start falling into a trap that the rich fall into, a certain way of thinking. And that certain way of thinking can actually disrupt your relationship with God. And if you are a Jesus follower, it means you are to long to put God truly first in your life, just like in the song we just sang, putting God first in our heart. But if you're rich, money is going to try to become first in your heart. And that is why today we have to talk about this concept of saving. Because what the rich often do is take a good thing and they twist it and make it a bad thing. Here's what I mean the rich often are trying to figure out. How they can get more. Because they want to take yet another vacation. They want to get yet another car, even though their current one's working just fine. They want to get a bigger house because those things are going to feel better. They're going to be more comfortable. They're going to make them look better in the eyes of their society. And so their concept is to go after wealth and riches so that they feel better about themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with the vacation. Right? There, there, really, there's nothing sinful about getting a new car. I mean, it's not abusing the grace of God to upgrade your cell phone, all right? I don't want you to mishear me. But what happens is you end up thinking, I need more, and the only reason you want more is so that you can be rich with yourself. But today what you're going to hear out of the scriptures is God does not want you to be rich to yourself. He wants you to be rich toward him. And the way to be rich toward God is to be rich toward others. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And so that just as Jesus generously gave his life for us, God is now calling you, if you're a Jesus follower, to give your life, including your money, to be a blessing to others and be rich towards him. So I realize some of what I'm going to teach is going to fly in the face of what you want, fly in the face of what our culture pushes. It even flies in the face of some of what Christianity tries to push on us. But I want you to truly have this deep connection with God to take hold of that which is truly life. So that means we have to talk about the money in your savings account. So Heavenly Father, I pray that today this would not be just about me uh, and what I want to say. It truly would be about what your scriptures have to say and teach to us. God, I realize that all of us walk in here in very, very different places. Some of us are walking in here um, having just had a great week and we're excited to be back with our church family. And so we are here ready to learn and listen. Some of us, we've had a hard week, whether it be physically or emotionally or something else that that we're coming in and we're not at our best. We're not tip top. And, and so we're coming in a bit sheepish. Some of us, we're financially doing well. And, and the problem is we've kind of forgotten to let you be involved with that, that for forgetting that it's actually your money. It's not ours. And so, Lord, we, we've, we've allowed ourselves to, to rely upon our, our own riches. Some of us in this room, we're wondering how we're just going to make it to the end of this week. Like financially, things are really, really hard, really, really tough. And what we're about to hear, it may seem like it's really insensitive. So, God, that's why I just pray right now through your Holy Spirit, you would minister. You would take my words and actually make them yours that you would move beyond what I need to say and want to say, and you would reach into the hearts and minds of these people here, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey. Today is your day to do in us what you need to do to call us into the life you hold for us. So God, that's why I pray now for openness. Help us to be ready to hear from your Holy Spirit. Teach us so that we can be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up to 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy. If you're not quite sure where Timothy is, you can use the sort of cheat sheet up on the TV screen. Feel free to use the table of contents also. Um, If you're a first-time guest with us at Riverwood, we really don't care if you use a paper Bible or a digital Bible. We just want you to have a Bible. So that's why every week I encourage people, if you don't own a paper Bible, we've got uh, paper copies back on the Give and Grow table. You can either just walk in and use that when you come to Riverwood, or better yet, just take one of them. That would be our gift to you, and that way you can bring it back when you and use it on Sundays because this is what we do every week. We open up the scriptures and study it together, but you could also then use it on Monday and Tuesday and every day. Also, if you've got a smartphone but do not have a Bible on it, I encourage you, download one to it. Right now, you'll notice several people in our church family are pulling out their phones. They're using their Bibles. We'd love for you to have a Bible, and that way, wherever you go with your rich smartphone, you have a Bible with you as well. If you're not familiar with the book of First Timothy, it's actually a letter. It's written by who many Christians call the Apostle Paul, and it's to a young man named Timothy. Paul used to travel all around the Mediterranean region after he became a Jesus follower, and he would go into a city, and he would tell people about the death and resurrection of Christ, and how Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, and many people would hear Paul and believe him. Now, some rejected him. They thought he was a fool. But some people thought it's it's true. And so they would put their faith in Jesus, into this story. Well, what would end up happening is as people put their faith in Jesus, a church would begin to form. And so Paul would begin to pastor that church, lead that church, raise other people up to serve as the elders, as the pastors for that church. And then he'd take off and go to another city. Well, usually Paul did not do that by himself. He usually had a contingent of guys with him. And one of his most faithful companions in in ministry was the young man, Timothy. But when Paul got to a city called Ephesus, it turned out Ephesus was a very key strategic city of its time, and it became a great place for Paul to do ministry. And so Paul actually stayed in Ephesus longer than he did any other city where he planted a church. He was in Ephesus for three years. But because it was such a key important church in a key important city, Paul knew, I can't just leave this to anyone. So he asks Timothy, his faithful companion, who traveled all around the world with him to stay and pastor and lead the church. Even though Paul ended up leaving and Timothy stayed, the friendship did not end. Paul continued to write letters back to Timothy. We know of at least two, and we call them First Timothy and 2 Timothy. And he's giving Timothy instructions on how to lead and pastor and, and disciple these people. And towards the end of what we know as First Timothy... He gives Timothy some instruction on, here's what you need to do to help rich people follow Jesus. And these are the words that he has to say. So join me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In a Three weeks, as I just announced, we're gonna be launching FPU, uh, Financial Peace University. And if, if you take it, whether you take it for the first time, you're gonna take it again, and, and the reason I say some of you need to take it again is we live in a world that is constantly drawing us back to money. So you I mean you may have gone through the course, I'm gonna get my financial house in order, but then just life happened, and you just kind of reverted back to some old patterns and ways. And so you might need to take it as a refresher. Because one of the concepts that FPU really pushes. Is that debt is bad? Like you need to get out of debt, and it comes from Proverbs 22:7, which says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And if you're paying off, you know, high interest credit cards or student loans, you're in a sense a slave to that lender. And so FPU wants to help you become free. They don't want you underneath Visa or Discover or, you know, whoever has your student loans. They want you to have that financial freedom because then you're not paying off all this interest. You're able to then use these funds to to be rich towards God, as we're going to be talking about today. But what happens is some people take FPU and the great concept there and they go further. Because oftentimes we think in a very binary way. We often will think, okay, so if if debt is bad, therefore having lots and lots of wealth is good. So we need to amass great wealth. But the problem is, that's not what the scriptures teach. Paul is here, it's trying to say, all right guys, it's not about trying to amass as much wealth as you can for yourself. It's about something better. Because if your focus is on amassing wealth, you're no longer going to be connected to God the way he wants you to be connected with him. That's why he calls us to a different way to be rich. So here's how Paul says to truly be rich. It starts there in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Not to be haughty. Why does Paul start there? Why is he saying, hey, don't get prideful. Don't get haughty. Don't be full of yourself. It's because big bank accounts often lead to big heads. Back in 2008, uh, the United States went through a recession. A lot of people lost a lot of money, and they saw a spike in uh, depression, uh, in divorces, um, in suicides. Uh, It was was a really dark time for a lot of people. And so it caused quite a few psychologists to get interested in what does money do to our, our attitudes, our emotions. And so a lot of studies started to take place. And one of the things they discovered was that the more money you had, the higher your income, they also saw an increase in narcissism. They saw an increase in unethical behaviors. And they also saw, what was the third thing? Uh, Oh yeah, an uh, uh, increase in discriminatory attitudes towards other people. That's why a guy by the name of uh, Paul Piff, a psychologist, had a 2013 TED Talk where he asked the question, does money make you mean? And the research seems to say, Yes. And about 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul starts off saying, hey, charge them not to be haughty. He didn't have to wait until 2013 for the research to come out. We just know, the more money you you start making, the more you start relying on it, the more you think you're more important, and we think the fatter your wallet, the, the better you must be. And nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel... Humbles us. If you are a Jesus follower, you know that the gospel teaches that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. The fact that Jesus would come to earth, die on a cross to die for our sin, to to pay it off. I mean, that is the most extravagant gift anyone could give us. I mean, if that's not love, I don't know what is. But at the same time, not only are you more loved than you could ever dream of, you are far more sinful than you could ever imagine. Like, like you're more sinful than you probably want to admit. I mean, Jesus had to come to earth to die for your sin because you could not work off and pay off your sin. I mean, if that's not humbling, I don't know what is. And so if, if you need something to deflate your ego, just look to the cross. Look to Jesus. And that will keep you from being haughty. That's why Paul's saying, hey, take your eyes off your bank account. Start looking to Christ. Do not be haughty. But he doesn't stop there. There's another not that we need to do. It is to not put our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Notice, Paul doesn't say to not set their hopes on riches. He says on the uncertainty of riches. My uh, son Zion and I are reading a devotional book uh, together at night before he goes to bed. And uh, it's written by a pastor. And in, in uh, what, what the book does is he addresses a topic and then tries to bring the Proverbs in to, to bring some wisdom to this particular topic. And so one chapter was on money. And in, in there, he started off with a story. The pastor starts with a story of a businessman who asked if they could get together. And so they, they arranged to meet for lunch at this restaurant. And the pastor says he gets there and he got there before the businessman. So he sits down in a booth. And as he's sitting there, he can see out the window, this incredibly expensive Mercedes Benz pull in and out comes the businessman and he's wearing a brand new suit. It's tailored. The guy looks amazing. And the pastor said just for a second, he thought to himself, oh, like, he's got it all together. Like I'm driving like a 15, 20 year old car and my suit's pretty worn. Well, the businessman came in and sat down and begins to say the reason that they needed to get together was the businessman was on the verge of losing everything. And he was just needing help and encouragement and prayer. So the pastor did what he could to to pour into him. But it didn't work. Because about two weeks later, the businessman committed suicide. And his action basically revealed that what mattered was his money. And if he couldn't have money, he felt like he had nothing. Money can come and money can go. And we've all heard the stories of the lottery winner who just within a couple years is completely broke, or the the professional athlete who signs the you know multi-million dollar contract and a few years later is, you know, having to file for bankruptcy. Money can come like that, and money can go like that. That's why Paul says don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Yeah, it may look like you've got a lot, but it would not take much for it to just be gone. I, I, it could be a stock market crash. You know, there could be a health crisis in your family and all your funds are going to go into, into that. Like you don't know what will happen, but you can't put your hope in that. Instead, he says, you need to put your hope in God. That's the very next phrase. He says, to instead, not put it on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. <laughs> Jesus talks about this uh, some in one of his parables. This is back in Luke chapter 12. And here's the story he told. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Both Jesus and Paul are trying to say, Don't put your hope in money. Don't put it in your riches. Don't put your focus on trying to amass as much as you possibly can. Instead, put your hope in God. Because even if weather strikes and and wipes out everything, even if the stock market crashes, even if the doctor says it's cancer and you're going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills, even if you die, God can provide. He is the one who richly provides. He's the best insurance plan you could possibly have. Now, in a little bit, we're going to talk about, we don't know exactly how God will provide. That's up to him. All we know is we need to put our faith in him. So Paul is saying, guys, if you want to have this connection to God, don't let your hope and trust be in your money. Instead, put it in God. So now that leads to the question. Okay, so if we're not to put our hope into our riches, what do we do? Where do we, we put our hope in God? What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us, verse 18. Instead, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, don't be rich with yourself. Don't put your focus in amassing as much wealth as you possibly can so that you can live comfortably. And instead, use whatever you amass. Use whatever God has given you to be rich in good Works like give it away, be generous, be ready to share. I'll admit that's hard, but if you want to truly follow Jesus, it's what you're called to do because it's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not come to this earth and amass great wealth for himself. In fact, there's one point where Jesus says that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has no place to lay his head. I mean, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but, but the Son of Man, no. Now, if anyone was capable of getting great wealth, it was Jesus. That wasn't his focus. Because again, money can come and money can go. Jesus had something far more important for us. And that was true life. That was himself. It was the gospel. And so he did not come to amass great wealth. Instead, he gave himself away. And if you are a Jesus follower, you're called to do the same thing. It isn't about massing wealth to try to make yourself comfortable. It's taking whatever God's given you, whether that's a lot or a little, and you give it away. You see, it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's just wrong to take that wealth and use it on yourself. We're going to talk about this here in a little bit, but you got to remember, everything you have is actually God's. It's not yours. When you die, you can't take it with you. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you've heard the joke, but... You know, a wealthy man had a great close relationship with God. And God says, hey, I just want you to know you're dying tonight. And the man's like, oh, oh, no. Well, can I like bring some stuff with me? God's like, no, that's not the way it works. And the guy, the, the man says, God, we've had such a close relationship all these years. Please let me bring something with me. So God's like, all right, for you, I'll make the exception. You can pack one suitcase and bring it with you. So the man's like, okay, what what do I take? He goes, well, my my most treasured possession, the thing that gave me so much wealth was gold. So he packs a suitcase full of heavy gold. And that night he's holding on to this heavy suitcase and the angel shows up and says, all right, it's time to go. And off they go to heaven. And the rich man's walking up to the gates and Peter goes, whoa, 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 hang on. It's always Peter at the gates. I don't know why, it just is. Peter's like, wait, hang on, you you can't bring that in. And and the rich man says, no, 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 God God said I could. He, He told me I could bring one suitcase with me. And he, he looks at the book of life and goes, Oh, yeah, there's your name. Oh, you're right, one carry on. Okay. <laughs> so, so, out of curiosity, Peter's like, Well, let's open it up. Let's see what you brought. And this man, all his pride, he opens it up. Look at my gold bars. And Peter looks at him and goes, You brought pavement? <laughs> the greatest thing we have here on earth is nothing in heaven. So, why in the world do we spend all of our time trying to amass all this wealth here when we have something far better at waiting? And that's actually what Paul begins to move toward. Verse 19. He says, thus, so in other words, when you're rich in good works, when you're being generous, when you're ready to share, you are thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. I can't help but think when, when uh, Paul was writing this, he had the famous sermon that Jesus gave, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said this. He loves you deeply and intimately. And he doesn't want to see you giving your heart into these earthly riches because they fade, they go away. Moths can take them, thieves can steal them. Instead, put treasures in heaven. How do you do that? You live rich towards God. How do you live rich towards God? You live rich towards others when you live with this propensity for generosity, when you live with this outward focus, when anything God gives and pours into you is now going out to help others, you are storing up treasure in heaven. I don't know exactly what that treasure looks like. All I know is it's so important that both Jesus and Paul talked about it. How embarrassing would it be for us to get to heaven and leave behind a big bank account and we get there, and we've got nothing in our heavenly account. I mean, great congratulations. You follow Jesus. Jesus is your, your key, your, your, your ticket into heaven. But then you get there, and you've got nothing. You know, I think it's also, now this might be a little too strong, but it, it feels very wrong. And I would even maybe say it's evil. For us to go about amassing great wealth here, and there are people who are starving, like we get upset when the, the cashier forgets to give us our 10% off and, and yet we're not upset that there's a child wondering if they're going to have a meal today. Like we get so stressed about our 401k and yet somewhere around the world there's a mom wondering am I going to be able to feed my kids tonight? We put all of our hope and attention into these riches and God is saying hey trust me put your hope in me I can use you to help them and I can provide for you. And notice what Paul says happens when you live with this kind of idea, this propensity for generosity. You do this so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Uh, Just about three, four years ago, Corona, the Mexican uh, beer brand had an ad campaign called this is living in their ads to them. Living was going surfing or it was a Hawaiian vacation relaxing in hammocks on the beach. It was a, a hike through the mountains or going skiing in Colorado. I mean, they were showing all these things. They are, even a, you know, one of the ads was a, guy, a bunch of guys in a car heading off to a concert. And they're, you know, they're having a great time. And of course, you're, you got a crona in hand. You know, that was living. But did you notice in each of those things, it, it's spending money on yourself. It, it's buying the surfboard so that you can surf. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with surfing. It's buying the $200 tickets for the concert to go with your friends. And there's nothing wrong with concerts. But the whole entire thing was all about make you feel good. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's nice. That's fine. But if you want to really take hold of life, live like Jesus lived. Give your life away. Instead of spending the money on yourself, how can you make a difference in the life of someone else? That's what Paul's getting at. I think it's what Jesus was teaching over and over and over And when he was on earth. You see, God wants to do great things in this world. His chosen vehicle is you. But before he does this great work through you, he wants to do a great work in you. And that's why your heart can't be tied to money. You can't serve both God and money. So let let money not be king, you gotta give it away. You gotta let others have it. You gotta share. So now this brings up the question, so do we even save at all? I mean, like, is it wrong or evil to save? Well, I'd say no, it's not wrong or evil. I I actually think there's some wisdom in it. But here's how I would put it. I think you should save, but not focus on saving. Now, I realize that sounds like an oxymoron, but let me explain. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he was writing uh, to the church in Galatia, uh, he he says this in chapter 6. He says to carry one another's burdens. And he even goes on to say that that's the law of Christ, which makes sense because Jesus came to earth and carried the burden of our sin. He carried it to the cross so that sin could be killed, it could be getting, gotten rid of, and we could then live free. All right? So Jesus bared our burden. So if we're going to love like Jesus loved, we need to bear the burdens of others. But then Paul finishes out this paragraph by saying, so therefore each person must bear their own load. And you almost want to go, whoa, 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 time, time out, Paul. <laughs> it, are we supposed to carry the burdens of others or, or carry our own? And I think Paul just looks at us a little confused and goes, both. In other words, you need to live responsibly where you can bear your own load. That's why in, in FPU, Dave Ramsey, who created it, teaches that you need to set up an emergency fund. Like, save some money, get an emergency fund, so that when the dryer starts squealing at your house, not that I know from personal experience, uh, or when the car suddenly needs, you know, new brakes, or, you know, something on it breaks, you know, whatever emergency comes up, you've got that emergency fund, and you can bear your own load. And that way, when you bear your own load, your church family around you, they're not now having to carry your load with you, they're still freed up to help others with their load. However, when you think, well, then four, I need to amass as much as I possibly can. Now what you're doing is you're trying to get all that to keep rich for yourself. Well, I don't want to be a burden on anyone else. Yeah, but what you're doing is you're now robbing people the opportunity to come alongside and be a part of this. When Leanne and I lived in Venezuela, Oh, we would hold a uh, church on, in English on the school campus during the school year. We taught at a missionary kid's school. But then during the summers, we would go out into the community, and we'd be part of a Spanish church. Now, our Spanish is really bad. Like, we only know Uh all right, So please, if you know Spanish, don't try and start talking to me. I'll just look at you confused. Uh, all I learned from my Spanish was, hola, mi nombre es el ningo you killed my father, prepare to die. You know, That's <laughs> that like the totality of it, all right? I'm not going to make it very far in Mexico uh, with that. But we would go to the, the Venezuelan churches, and, and there would be people who would pop up and share prayer requests, and we'd have some, you know, missionaries with us who did know Spanish, and they would begin to interpret. And so many times, we would see a family get up and confess, hey, we lost our job this week. We have no money. We don't know how we're going to make it. And the church would rally around them. They'd start preparing meals. I mean, they'd bring all sorts of meals. They'd fix their car for them. They'd do anything they could because they all knew that could be me in just a few months. And so they tried to live where they would bear their own burden, but they did not focus so much on amassing everything they could. Instead, they focused on how can I help alleviate the burdens of others? It's this both. We need to save, but not just so we can make ourselves feel better. We need to save so that we can bear our own burden and also come along and bear the burdens of others. And that brings us to the second thing I want to say, that we need to steward with a focus on God. Uh, Two weeks ago, we uh, started this little mini series within the Everyday Gospel series, this money edition, by looking at the concept of stewardship. Stewardship reminds us that everything we have is God's. Like, we truly own nothing. That means your house is actually God's house. Your car is God's car. Your bank account is God's bank account. That is why you can't sit there and amass as much wealth as you can so that you can live as comfortably as you can. Because it's not your money. It's His. And if he's wanting you to be a blessing to others, then you need to use his funds to be a blessing to others. You need to be rich towards God by being rich towards those around you. And so that means how can God's car that you drive be used to be a blessing to others? Do you need to lend it to someone to, so they can get to a job interview? Do you need to drive someone to their doctor's appointment? Do, do you need to like let someone borrow it while their car's in the shop? Because it's not your car, it's God's. So how can you use it to be a blessing? How could you use your house? If you're one of those rich people that has a guest room, could you let someone live with you for a time while they get back on their feet? Uh, maybe a college student who just graduated and doesn't have a job yet. How, how can you use your, your living quarters to be a blessing to someone else? How about your bank account? Are, are you letting that truly be God's? Are you asking him, what do you want me to do with your funds? May, may, maybe you just need to do some small things. Maybe you need to just begin giving here at Riverwood. Maybe you need to become a compassion sponsor for $38 per month. You can help sponsor some child around the world so they get some food and clothing and shelter, but also so that they can have every opportunity to hear about Jesus. Maybe there's another organization. Maybe there's just someone on your street who's not making ends meet and you sense God saying, I want you to go and help them. See, the problem is when we're rich with ourselves, our eyes on ourselves. But to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, it means our eyes have to be outward. And as our eyes are outward, how can we help others? Now I realize some of you, you might be at a place where you're actually needing us as a church family to come and bear your burden with you. And we want to do that because that's what the church does. But at the same time, you don't just look, how can I get? It's how can I be repaired and restored so that then I can reorient my life to be able to help others. That's God's goal in this. What people need isn't just more money. What they need is Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? But you are positioned as a rich person to use the things that God has given you to be a blessing towards others. When you are rich in good works, when you are generous, when you are ready to share You not only store up treasure in heaven for yourself, but you take hold of that which is truly life. Because now you are living like Christ. You are giving yourself away. So Father, I pray that any moments of conviction that we have right now, that that would be sealed right now through your Holy Spirit. God, if there's anyone who's being called right now to, to do something, I pray that, that they would have the guts to actually go and do it. Because Jesus, you had the guts to come to this earth to live a, a, a sinless life, but to go and die a sinner's death. You died in our place so that our sin could be forgiven. We could be set free and we could come into a relationship with a loving heavenly father. And so Jesus, because you did that for us, help us to do that for others. To be able to give of ourselves and to give of our finances. God, I I just pray that you'd forgive us. Those of us who have focused so much on our our own personal wealth that that we're we're not in a tune with, with what's going on around us. Lord, would you just help us to reorient our life, to be like Christ and truly love others. God, I pray for the person who's really struggling right now. That poverty is just something they're well too aware of. Father, even the poor person can commit the same sin of putting their hope in riches. Father, instead, I pray that they'd put their hope in you, that they would trust you to be the one to richly provide for them everything that they need, everything that they would enjoy. God, I know how much you love us. We see that through the cross. Would you now, through your Holy Spirit, move us to reflect that love and to live like Jesus, to take the good things that you've given us And to use them to truly be a blessing to the world. Because as we do so, you tell us right here in 1 Timothy, that we take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus, you are life. You are light. You are love. So help us to hold on to you as we allow you to work through us to be a blessing to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This sort of life can only be motivated through the gospel. You could leave here today and you could try and say, all right, that's it. I'm going to go and write a big check. I'm going to give this away. I'm going to invite you know someone to come and live in my house. And you can go and do that. But you may be going to do it trying just to make yourself feel good. That's the wrong motivation. The right motivation is Jesus. That if Jesus is your focus, if your focus is on being rich towards God, then you can truly be that blessing to others. That's why we take communion. Communion reminds us that Jesus is our motivation for how to live life. And so if you are a Jesus follower, I invite you to this table. At any time during the song, you're invited to come to take the bread, which represents Jesus' body being broken for us, to take that cup, which is his blood shed for us. And as you bring that into you, you realize, Jesus gave it all for me. And so, because now that's part of my story. I'm going to give it all for him. But if you're here today and you are not a Jesus follower, I'm just going to ask that you be very, very respectful and not go to these elements. Because when you take those elements into you, you're saying his story is my story. And if you're not quite there yet, it's okay to remain where you're at. No one is going to judge you. Many of us here in Riverwood, we're, we were where you are right now. So no one is going to think less of you if you don't go to these elements you don't need to go to them to try to impress God. We go to these elements to worship God. But if you are a Jesus follower, if Christ is at the center of your identity, would you come? No matter what sins you've confessed, and committed this week, no matter what's been going on, no matter what thoughts have been hammering you in the head, would you bring it all to him? Because God doesn't just want you to open up your financial life to him. He wants you to open all of your life to him. And as you come to the communion elements, may that be a moment of confession, of repentance, and commitment to Him. Let us go and do this now in remembrance of Him.